You were kicking off, as Andy said, our first teaching module, if you like, within this thing we're calling pattern, this intentional journey of formation between now and at least the summer. We'll see how it goes. And today we're looking at the foundational truths on which everything else in our lives should sit and then be built, as I would argue. So first up today, we're looking at this idea of the gift of grace, this thing that gifts is, is God is gifting to us, this wonderful gift of grace that transforms and shapes so much of our lives. It's this big truth that's woven through the scriptures that God loves us unconditionally and that even when we walk away from that love, he continues to love us, continues to reach out to us, seeks after us, forgives us when we come back to him, extends grace to us and welcomes us back into his family, gives back to us that which he had for us right from the very beginning. That is what God is like. That is the big truth on which we can build our identities as humans in the image of God. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But if I'm honest with you, there are days, times, seasons where I find it really, really hard to actually believe it to actually do it. And so it's really good to revisit this topic right at the very beginning of this journey. So this is the fundamental thing that shapes and defines us, that we are loved by God unconditionally, even when we don't deserve it. We've just sung, haven't we, that song, Good, Good Father. That's who you are. It's in God's nature that he is love. He is gracious. And that is the thing that makes all the difference. It's interesting to me, right in the very beginning of the book of the Old Testament, one of the beginning books of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, when God passes past Moses up on Mount Sinai, here's what Moses hears God say about who he is. And this is what's written down in the tablets of stone. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Of all the ways that God could describe himself, he could have said the almighty creator, powerful God, but he says, no, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. We're going to open up the scriptures in a moment, but I want to start by telling you a true story uh, someone I met at New Wine, a festival we're part of as a church and as a family a few years ago now. It's the story of Jessie, who at the time was 17. She's now in her early 20s. Uh, her father is a vicar. And this particular event happened one Friday night. She told her parents that she was going to watch movies and eat pizza with some of the other girls from her youth group at church. Actually what she was doing was sneaking out to a wild house party with one of her friends from school. She, would, she says now, looking back, I was in this rebellious phase where I was walking away from God, giving up on church, but going through the motions to keep my parents happy. That evening, just after 10, the phone goes, the, the dad's mobile phone rings, and he looks to his screen and he sees that it's his daughter, Jessie, calling him. So he picks up the phone, but quickly realizes it's not Jesse at the other end of the phone, and it certainly doesn't sound like a quiet evening watching movies, eating pizza. All he can hear is loud, thumping music, and his friends, sorry, his daughter's friend from school calling him, saying, 
Jessie's in real trouble. She's drunk. This party's got out of control. I'm really scared. Please, would you come and get us? So the dad jumps in the car, drives straight to the address that she's given him, turns up, finds this, his daughter's friend on the doorstep waiting for him. They go in, they find Jesse, he scoops her up, he gets both the girls in the car, he drops the friend home, heads home with his daughter. The mum steps in, takes her upstairs, gets her ready for bed, uh, and then they sit down together in their living room and look at each other and say, now what? I don't know how you imagine they might have responded to what their daughter had done. Maybe you can relate to it, either as perhaps the child or the parent who's found themselves in that situation. Well, the next morning, Jessie wakes, and as you might imagine, feels a bit worse for wear, lies in bed for a while, and then realizes she's got to head downstairs and face the music. So she bravely does so. And as she walks down into the family kitchen, she sees sat around the table waiting for her, her mum and her dad and her two brothers, and this incredible brunch laid out on the table for her. And she begins to try to say something, and the dad says, no, just, just sit down. This, we've been waiting for you. And so she has another look at the table and she realizes it's all her favorite things to eat. And the dad has got up in the morning and gone to the supermarket and he's cooked up a storm and she sits down and she says, I, I, I don't understand, but, I, but dad, and he says, no, just want you to enjoy it. I, I want you to know that nothing you do or don't do will ever change the fact that we love you. We love you because you're our daughter. Nothing you did last night has changed that. I imagine it was a slightly awkward brunch, but they have brunch together, and they come to the end, and he starts to clear the table, and she says, well, at the very least, Dad, let me clear the table with you. Let me do the washing up, at least. And he says, no, you can't pay me back. It's not how it works. That's not what we're doing here. This is a, a gift from God to you through us. We want you to know what God is like because God is the God who says my love for you is unconditional. You don't deserve this. You can't pay me back for it, but you need to know in this moment of your life that we love you and God loves you unconditionally. So actually what you could do is you could go and get dressed because I'm taking you out. At this point, she thought maybe this is the moment where I'm going to get into some trouble. Maybe this is where the punishment's coming. Maybe this is where the stern lecture from my father is coming up. I don't know. So she, she goes upstairs, she gets dressed, they jump in the car, and it seems initially that they're heading back to the place where the house party was. And she's wondering, maybe I'm going to have to go and apologize to the owners of the house, or maybe I'm going to have to go and help with the clear-up. And before she realizes it, they've turned left at the lights, and they're not going that way at all. They head to the local shopping center as they pull up into the car park, he says, what's the name of the shop that sells those trainers you've been saving up for? And she said, Dad, no, 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 you can't do that. And he goes, yes, I can. She said, I, I, I don't understand. I, I don't deserve this. And he says, I, I, actually, I think you do understand. But I want to buy you these trainers that you've been saving up for. Let me go and buy them. Let me be outrageously generous to you. So eventually she agrees and they get back in the car and she says, Dad, I just don't understand. And he said, I want every time you put these on to remember that you are our daughter and that your father and your mother 
because God the Father is like this too. We want you to always, always know that love is stronger, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesse, as you might imagine, was totally transformed by that moment in her life. She never went to a wild party like that anyway again. We'll come back to Jesse in a bit. If you have a Bible, maybe turn to Luke chapter 15. It's going to come up on the screen. This is a parable told by Jesus, a story to articulate profound truth. It's actually perhaps one of the most beautiful of all the parables. Some would say it's, it's in a sense, it's the gospel within the gospel. And it's a similar story. Jesus tells this story to help us understand something of God's character and how grace works. We will go through it a little bit at a time and just see what's going on here. So Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through to 24, starts like this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Here we have the younger son of a wealthy father asking for his inheritance ahead of time. The son's request here reveals this impatience, this selfishness, this ignorance actually about how things work. He couldn't wait to his father's death to get his inheritance. He, he wants it now. He doesn't really understand not only the customs of the day, but the true worth of everything that the father had for him. This is an outrageous story. Those listening at the time would have been shocked as Jesus paints this picture. That never happened. Here is essentially the son making tantamountly, really what is tantamount to a death wish on his father. It goes on, verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Instead of investing that money in a business, buying some property, getting himself sorted, the, the son goes off to a distant country and squanders it on nice dining and parties and fast cars and who else knows what else. You can imagine the picture. It's a bit like being given a million pounds and then having nothing to show for it a year later. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, again, outrageous moment. This is a Jewish audience. Pigs were unclean. Here is this son finding, finding himself in this situation where he is less than the pigs. He's having to feed these pigs. It says in verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Yes, Jesus is painting an exaggerated picture, but it's to make a point. He finds himself the lowest of the low. He's so jealous of the pigs because they have food and he doesn't. He's finding himself alone. He's got nothing left. And then this moment dawns on him. Maybe, maybe the only solution is to head back home. Maybe, just maybe, my father will allow me to maybe be a servant or something. So verse 17, it says, He came to his senses and says, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. It's kind of a logical conclusion. It's got to be better than this. It's pretty awkward, but I'll give it a go. I've got nothing else to lose. 
So I imagine he sits down and he kind of writes out his little speech or he rehearses what he's going to say in his mind as he heads home from the far distant country. Here's what we imagine him saying. Verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. He heads home, intending to plead for mercy in the hope that he'll get taken on as a member of staff. There's no way he knows in his head. There's no way I can pay my father back. But that's the, perhaps going to be the good outcome in all of this. But here's how the story plot twist comes in. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father runs out. In those days, they would have worn robes. And so imagine the scenario. He's having to lift these up and run. It's undignified. Men didn't do that in those days. But such is the love of the father for his son. He's seen him coming back over the horizon. Nothing is going to stop him. And so he gets to him. He throws his arms around him and he kisses him. The son begins his little speech. Father, I've sinned against you, against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to call your son. But the father interrupts him. And says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so it says they began to celebrate. The father doesn't allow him or require him to apologize. He wants to extend his radical, outrageous, generous grace to his beloved son because he loves him unconditionally. This isn't a scenario where the father reluctantly says, okay, well, yeah, fine, go and join the servants. No, no, what he does here is he gives him his ring back and his robe back and his sandals back. And he says, you are worthy to be called my son because I'm making you worthy Again, he fully restores the son to uh, tr- his true identity in this family. And then they go and get this fattened calf reserved for some future party, and they have a massive celebration. The father says, because later on, because I thought you were gone, but you've come home. These two stories, both true in a sense, tell us something about what God is like, what his love is like, and how grace works. Friends, when we think about who we are, this is where it begins. When we want to get our head around who we are, what our identity is, it actually begins with understanding what God is like, who God is, and who God says we are, because we're made in his image. And all of this is true for every human, whether or not they have faith in Jesus. This is true in every single person we know. And part of our job as the church is to inhabit this reality and truth for ourselves so that other people can discover it for themselves. There are two fundamental truths about God that are the basis on which we can truly know ourselves as the beloved of God. The first, as I've said, is that God's love is unconditional. In contrast to the way of our world, with all its crippling metrics, these unattainable ideals, this relentless comparison culture in which we find ourselves scoring ourselves 
assessing our performance, trying to prove ourselves worthy of love, looking to one another for validation that cannot ever sustain us. God says, my love for you is not based on what you do or don't do. It's based on the fact that I made you in my image because I am love and I made you for love. And nothing changes that. Nothing changes that. God loves us regardless of our performance, our behavior, our past, our sin. It's not that some of those things don't matter. It's not that they don't need to get dealt with. But it's simply that they don't determine or limit God's love for us. The second truth is that God is gracious to us even when we reject that love. That's what we heard in those two stories, isn't it? The loving father, the loving mother, this response of grace in the face of a rejection. Grace is this word that means so much. It's just five letters, but it contains the most profound truth in the whole universe about the nature of God, that God's unmerited favor comes to us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. We don't get what we deserve. We get what we were created for. The human story, and we can read about it in the scriptures, we can read about it in the newspapers, shows us that time and time again, we as the people of God, as humans, wander away from God's unconditional love. We reject it. We don't trust it. We don't live in it. We don't believe it. We don't let it shape and define us enough. So often we just wander away. We leave home to sneak out to a party. We leave home to start a new life over there, rejecting our inheritance. Uh, We leave, I would suggest, the security and comfort and truth of God's love for us every single time we reach for unconditional love where it cannot be found in someone else, in something else, in a status, in an acquisition, in a, a look, in a postcode, in a bank account. Whenever we stop hearing the voice of the Father who speaks unconditional love to us, for whatever reason, we, we start listening to these other voices around us and we get sucked away from God like Jessie, tempted by her friend to to walk away from what she had inherited and find ourselves in a distant land where it turns out love is conditional. Henri Nguyen, in his incredible book about this parable, says this, leaving home is a denial of the spiritual reality that we belong to God with every part of our being that God holds us safe in an internal embrace. Leaving home, he says, is living as though we do not yet have a home and must look far and wide for one. God does not reject us or write us off when we do this. It's quite the opposite. He's the father who gets in his car and heads to the wild party to find us. He's the father looking each morning to the horizon, hoping that this might be the day that his long-lost child comes home and then hitches up his robes and runs out to meet us. This is the father who sends a son to live and die in our place, raises into new life, that all people can come home, truly come home to the father in heaven.
God extends grace to us. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Psalm 103 says it like this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. God is love. God is gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he wants us to know again and again who we are and whose we are. Brennan Manning puts it like this. Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. Living in awareness of our belovedness is the axis around which the Christian life revolves. Being the beloved is our identity, the core of our existence. It is not merely a lofty thought, an inspiring idea, or one name among many. It is the name, he says, by which God knows us and the way he relates to us. Define yourself as one radically beloved by God. A footnote as we end. I heard Jessie's story from her school friend, who by then had come to faith in Jesus. Because she had seen the way that Jessie's parents responded to her in that moment, extended grace to her. And she said, I discovered through what, how Jessie experienced grace, what I had been looking for in those wild parties. And they, they were serving at a Christian festival. Totally different. This is not just good news for us. This is good news for everybody. And when we embrace it for ourselves, we get to show what God is like to other people. And when we emulate the Father just like Jesse's dad did, we get to experience it. Uh, they get to experience it, sorry, for themselves. Bono, who's an underrated theologian, put it like this. Grace finds beauty in ugly things. Grace finds goodness in everything. Let's pray.